welcome to the Tree Planners podcast. It is June, July. It's July, right? Is it July? July, yeah, July. I did this last time. <laughs> it's very hot. My brain is shriveling up. Um, yeah, so it's June se- July 7th. Oh, my God. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, we're uh, we're well into the summer here, and we are joined as usual by Margaret Prophet, and Hello. there she is, and Jen Jennifer Van Genup. Hi. And uh, Jennifer is joining us today to uh, you're going to talk about some uh, some housing issues. Is that right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> we're we, so. Polished. This is we, unbelievable. We, how we, we are. Yes, we planned it meticulously and um, attention to detail everywhere. But <laughs> you know, we, we we like to think that uh, people uh, enjoy listening to us because we're kind of off the cuff and it's uh, the casual atmosphere. <laughs> That's what we tell ourselves. That's what we our tell ourselves. Our our strengths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our weaknesses are our strengths. Um. So, as usual, we might as well dive into it. Uh, we uh, start with some links or issues or whatever that we're following over the past week that we and that, that have caught our attention that we think are interesting and worthwhile sharing. So, uh, Margaret, have you got anything that's top of mind for you? Funny how it's always me that goes first, but that's okay. I'll uh, I'll I'll go with it for today. Pressure. Um, yeah, it is pressure to be honest, because you're assuming that I've actually really prepared and I've, I've been a, a good student for this. Um, so some of the things, nothing really too exciting. Um, I'm still working on a lot of kind of just recovery uh, efforts that are happening kind of across Canada. I'm still delving into um Kind of how land use planning at the very base is, you know, based on colonial and racist structures. And that's really interesting to kind of detangle that. Mm-hmm. And speaking of land use planning, which is kind of like the rules that govern what we build, where we build, which is a good segue into Jen, although I know you have to go next, Adam, um, mm-hmm. is uh, talking about some of the changes that are happening with Ontario's rules that govern land use planning, otherwise known as the growth plan. And um, those changes are supposed to be uh, coming out. Well, they have come out and a lot of those changes are going to make it harder to get affordable housing. It's going to make it harder to protect green spaces. It's going to encourage kind of development on the fringes, um, and again, spread out community resources, which makes it difficult to pay for transit, to uh, you know build a active network, uh, active transportation network. So those changes are, are just announced, and um, not really not really great from how we're supposed to turn our communities into kind of low carbon, more equitable places, um, and more accessible places. So that's kind of the top notes. Normally I go off on a big rant, but I don't have, I I think I've expelled all my rants in previous episodes. So I'm still working on the same ranty stuff, just less rant. Well, yeah, you know, we, we touch on this topic quite a bit, but we haven't yet had someone on to specific, like an expert in the area to specific besides yourself, uh, to specifically address it. And I think that, um, I think that's worth, worth pursuing for, uh, an episode soon because this is, 
this is stuff that's happening right now. And it's stuff that, I mean, this is the, the big thing with land use planning is they are sort of, I think for most people bash your head against the brick wall, boring, uh, policy stuff. Like it's, it's nitty gritty, just, uh, I dry eyeballs kind of stuff. Um, but once implemented, it shapes your community, uh, for decades and decades and decades. Um, and so the impacts are, are very profound. Um, well, for me, I have been, um, watching sort of some of the conversation around debt and how that is used by governments, uh, in certainly in times like these, uh, to help, uh, mitigate the impacts of, uh, of, of a crisis such as what we're going through right now. Um, you know, there's a lot of debt that the government's taking on and, and we are starting to see all of these arguments pop up around, uh, you know, whether that debt is sustainable or not. Um, there's this in, sort of almost instinctive knee jerk reaction that people go to that any debt is bad debt. Uh, there's a whole bunch of rabbit holes that I can jump down uh, immediately there because you'll get this argument from a lot of fiscal conservatives, uh, which is cool. Uh, you know, that's fine. And on the surface of it, it makes a heck of a lot of sense, but they won't bat an eyelash at, uh, you know, the the ramifications of, of uh, you know, plowing over an ecosystem, which is debt in another form uh, that, that you're settling on, onto future generations. Climate change is, is, is a form of debt. Uh, anyways, that's one of those rabbit holes that I'm going to try and avoid right now. But one of the things, <laughs> one of the things that, that I find really interesting in this conversation is there's a metaphor used, um, and it's used pretty intentionally, uh, by a lot of, uh, quarters, uh, and the metaphor is basically, you know, it, it equates government debt with household debt. Um, and it's really not the case. It's really not true. Uh, there's a number of articles out there that dispel that, um, you know, governments, the, the, the timelines that they operate on are, are quite a bit, uh, more extended than what a family budget would be. And of course, they have the power to create money, which is a totally, entirely different thing as well. Uh, and there's a whole, you know, I, I'm, I'm by no means an expert in any of this stuff. I, I, I do find it very interesting. I do find it also a little bit difficult to comprehend. Um, but that's some of the stuff that I've been looking at. One of the things that uh, I think is worth paying close attention to in the arguments around debt is not the net amount of debt, but the debt to GDP ratio, uh, which in itself is actually problematic because GDP is not an excellent uh, marker of how well an economy is doing. But nevertheless, it's it's sort of in terms of the money that's being turned over in the economy. And um, if you spend, if, if you, you know, take out a loan, if you borrow, whatever, if you go into debt uh, now, and that ends up uh, creating uh, more um, a, a larger economy, uh, you know, a year down the road or several years down the road or what have you. That amount of debt uh, relative to the economy as a whole is 
you know, it shrinks as, as uh, to the extent that the economy grows. So it's in proportion. So I, I think that that's probably a better way of looking at the amount of debt that the government currently is spending. And one of the interesting things to look at to but note with We're not with going that, down this rabbit hole, remember? No. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things to, to note with that is the debt uh, that uh, has accrued uh, with the, uh, you know, addressing COVID is still less than what we had in the early 90s. So, you know, it, it, it's the, all the, you know, the doomsday uh, uh, you know, people starting to come out of the woodwork around this sort of stuff is, you know, put it into context, basically. And uh, there's a lot of... It's the oversimplification. Something that we've touched on over different topics is the oversimplification of complex mm -hmm. ideas, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's if you can just oversimplify it, then it just makes sense. And so one of the things I saw dealing with this was... Um, a, a poll that was put out saying, where does the Canadian government get its money from, mm -hmm. right? And there was all kinds of options, and people could also respond. And the vast majority believed that it's just taxes. So if you believe that, that you only get so much, similar to a household budget, if you only get so much money, you can only spend it so many different ways, a dollar only gets split, and you don't factor in the other ways that the government can generate revenue, then for sure you're going to under believe the government can't afford certain things that there has to be cuts mm -hmm. made because how many ways do you split a dollar because there's only so many taxpayers there's and you hear people say mm -hmm. there's only one pocket right yeah. mm -hmm. and so that that makes sense but it's it's oversimplifying actually what government debt and finance look like and to your point to sum this up is you've arranged for us to uh, do a webinar down the road with someone from um, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives who's going to be talking just about this type of messaging and economics and how to better understand it so that when the austerity messaging comes out and we need to cut like with with Jen and what she does we don't have we don't have money f to build housing. We don't have mm -hmm. money to, to home homeless people or unsheltered people, right? We don't mm -hmm. have money for that. There's actually some information to push back to say, actually, you do have the money for it. It's just a policy choice. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, choices, uh, absolutely. And if you choose to spend wisely, uh, you know, in, in a prudent way, um, then, then that pays off in the long term. And I, I, that's really a big part of the argument that we're trying to make with the Just Recovery is, you know, put money on things that, uh, that do start to address some of the looming uh, emergencies, some of the, some of the areas that are really going to cost us big time. And one of the, one of the primary prime ones is uh, climate change, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so Jen, is anything that you've been following this week? Um, yeah, I just finished reading, actually, while you were talking, I was thinking uh, that fits really well. I think we're all kind of looking into the same things right now where our interests are pretty aligned because I just finished reading Shooting the Hippo, which is a Linda McQuaig book, which hmm. looks at, it was written in 95, and it looks at exactly what you're talking about, about um, our debt and our deficit in the 90s and how we handled it and if it really was the only way that we could handle it. Um, it kind of pushes back, she, she pushes back on the idea that um, cuts to social programs are necessary when you're trying to tackle your debt or your deficit. And she suggests that um, 
another option is to deal with your unemployment rates because if everybody's working, then you have the tax revenue and um, then, you know, we can afford our programs and that a lot of our problems in the 90s came from tight money policies. So working to keep inflation down and keep interest rates down, um, or sorry, keep interest rates up, to keep interest rates up and inflation down. Um, and she kind of pushes back too on this idea that the Bank of Canada is a neutral body, when in fact, again, it's all policy choices, right? And and um, that often the choices that Canada has made um, are tilted towards creditors, not debtors. Hmm. and people who have money and who have wealth and uh, the system is sort of tilted in their favor. And so she, uh, she makes a lot of good points. So I've been kind of, you know, reading that and kind of looking through that and thinking how much of this applies now and um, picking up some, some messaging ideas. Another article that I was reading recently, I just came out last week and it's from Kristen Grimm. She runs Spitfire Strategies out of the States and she wrote an article called a better world ahead means shaping emerging narratives now. And uh, I'm always really interested in how we're shaping the stories. So she, her article, I think is really important and really timely about how we're going to tell the story of what happened and what we should be doing now and what's coming next and how we shape those narratives and how we all have a role in shaping those narratives. Um, and then I'm working on, I'm doing some work around the right to housing um, a lot of, again, it stems back to those, stems back from those, um, policy choices and the money choices made in the nineties. When you talk to experts around modern homelessness, they'll tell you it started in the late eighties and the early nineties when we stopped investing in housing. And what we're seeing now is a result of those monetary decisions, those policy decisions made 30 years ago. Well, so they'll, they'll okay. tell you modern homelessness is 30 years old. And uh, so that's what I'm working on, the right to housing and uh, communicating how COVID is sort of the narratives coming out of COVID and um, how we talk about austerity and debt and deficit. All light stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we just love the light stuff around here. <laughs> just fluff, yep. Just fluff. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that, that kind of segues pretty nicely into, um, the, the I, I'm always fascinated by the, I think it's similar to land use policy. Is it something that you're just sort of, you're in, it's the framing of, of the world around you. And it's kind of hard to step outside of that to see a different world sometimes, or a different way of doing things. Uh, so I, I mean, with, with housing, um, and with development, I it hasn't been for all that long where most of our housing was built sort of large scale by big developers. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't too long ago, I think, that, that, that most people sort of built their own houses. Well, my, my father-in-law was a local home builder. Pretty, like, he did a lot of uh, homes in Snow Valley and in Midhurst area. And mm-hmm. he'll tell me at the time when in the 80s, before the recession really hit, um, he was probably, almost everybody was a small, like Madame Homes and all those ones that are so big now, Pratt, weren't that big. 
they were kind of all on par. And the recession hit and all those local home builders, some of them consolidated into these kind of bigger conglomerates now. But try to go and get a house built by a home builder who only does one or two homes a year. Like they're just really not that common anymore. And Mm -hmm. when you get to these development applications that happen in Barrie and elsewhere, even though you might have to face, you know, a lot of them are kind of Toronto-centric companies that come up with their own crews, right? They're not. We have this, this kind of idea of what it used to be like, and we assume it's the same thing. So we talk about housing providing jobs, and yes, it does provide jobs, but when you try to break it down, is it actually local jobs? This mm-hmm. this idyllic vision of a local home builder with local tradespeople, and they're all small mom-and-pop operations. There are those, but there's very few of them left. And it really is more like locusts, if you will. You can see how my my value system is locusts. They like go from place to place, and they bring everything with them, right? And then they move on to somewhere else. It's um, yeah. yeah. So it is it is more of a modern problem. It probably coincides with what Jen was saying about the modern homelessness. Uh, issue that I would imagine, I don't know for a fact, but I would imagine there is some timeline that is very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the commodification of housing where it became mm-hmm. not just, it became an investment opportunity, right? Yeah. Should we probably induce or induce? <laughs> introduce? <laughs> Never mind that. Should we introduce Jen? Mm-hmm. Maybe? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, go for it. (laughs) So Jennifer Van Gennep, uh, today you're representing Simcoe County Alliance Town Homelessness, right? You also work with Red, Redwood Community Park Homes. Is that right? Redwood Park, Redwood Park Communities. Yep. Sorry. Um, and then you're just overall an amazing, inspiring kind of person who's got your fingers in kind of everything. So even an accomplished singer and a pianist, I must (laughs) add, like I I show my son your videos. I'm like, he's like, oh my gosh, you know her? And I'm like, yeah, quasi-celebrity. I I just went up like a level of cool just because you're actually really good. I'm like, yeah, I know her just so you know. So I have an in. Um, Anyways, so today we brought her on to talk about homelessness, about the right to housing, and that impacts our communities because as we allow people to fall through the cracks, that does have a cost. The cost that we don't want to admit has a cost, but it does, not only from a from a compassionate humanitarian angle, but also from a financial angle as well, that, um, that we could be doing better in a much more efficient, much more co-benefit kind of way. So welcome, Jen. Thank you. And I should say, yes, I, I am with data, Simcoe County Alliance and Homelessness, and Redwood Book. I guess I need a disclaimer that all opinions and uh, attempts at remembering facts are my own. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we I have need... that same disclaimer too, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> we don't represent anybody. So I, I think Adam's got all these questions for you, so I'm going to okay. throw it to him. Oh my God. No, I need the, I actually need that disclaimer tattooed across my forehead or on my hand so I can read it. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I guess, first of all, um, you mentioned uh, an interesting term. Uh, so modern homelessness, could you, could you explain a little bit uh, what you mean by that? I can tell you what I mean by it for sure. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's, 
got a formal term, but I think it's sort of this idea of the mass homelessness we're seeing. I think we've always, I mean, when we were kids, there were maybe a few people who seemed to kind of move from place to place and didn't have um, a permanent address. Um, but I think we've seen in the last 30 years or so a huge increase in that. And I think like right now, if you think about what's happening in Milligan's Pond and other encampments that are happening around the area, I mean, that didn't exist like that 30 years ago. And in Toronto, you've got hundreds of people um, camping in parks right now. Um, most cities, most major cities have very visible homelessness right now where you will see people sleeping on the sidewalks or sleeping on benches. Um, and setting up camps and parks, and uh, it didn't exist like that 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in Milligan's Pond, there there's a, a, a camp, uh, a number of um, sort of temporary shelters, tents, and whatnot that that were up there a few weeks ago, right? Uh, yeah. And so people were living there. Um, I, I'm assuming that it's mostly seasonal, like they that they oh, probably uh, wouldn't be staying there over the winter. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it, they come and go. To be honest, and even even from week to week, there's a fair amount of turnover there. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, a lot of the folks that are sleeping there will come into shelter over the winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was, um, I guess, an eviction notice that was served by uh, the city by uh, bylaw officers uh, back with, with police, sort of backing them up uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the, I mean, one of the, one of the aspects of, of of homelessness now that I find interesting is it's it's structural. Like, you know, if any, you can find stats pretty easily online that'll that'll uh, show that there is a considerable amount of property that is not inhabited, right? Oh, and, yeah. And, and I think that's, yeah. yeah, and so in turn, sort of linking it back to that commodifi- commodification aspect and, and sort of uh, housing being being a good on the marketplace, you know, if, if you just sort of allowed somebody to stay in a place that, that takes down the potential value right this in the 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 supply demand kind of aspect of it and and i think that's an interesting thing you know if the government were to come out and say look if you do not have anybody living in your if you if you haven't rented out your space for you know after after a few months or something like that then <laughs> you know we're going to use it to, to to put this person who doesn't have a home in absolutely um, either tax it or just take it <laughs> yeah you know not not to keep but to put someone in yeah um there i'm seeing quite a few tweets right now coming out of toronto talking about how and again i don't know the exact numbers but how there are more there are hundreds and probably thousands of people who are homeless in toronto right now but there are more thousands of vacant mm-hmm. uh units Internal. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that there isn't any housing, it's that it's been priced well out of everyone's um, price range by investment, by investors, um, often by investors who don't even live here. So uh, it's kind of, it's messed up our housing market. I know Vancouver is looking at or has implemented a 
a vacancy tax. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I'm not, I, I'm not sure if it's a tool that municipalities have in Ontario right now. I don't know if we're even able to, or if that's something that the province needs to give us permission to do, but I think it could be a good tool in, in helping uh, with the affordable housing. Well, we call it an affordable housing crisis, but probably a better way to look at it is that prices of housing have, have outpaced uh, wages, right? So we right. wages, the policy choices that our governments have made have allowed housing prices to skyrocket while at the same time suppressing what the average person can make. Mm-hmm. And both of those are the results. I think it's important for people to understand both of those are the results of decisions that are made by elected officials. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to someone today. Uh, someone interviewed me at, at Rogers, and we were just mm-hmm. talking about how, you know, it used to be, there, again, it's this, this idyllic version of how it used to be. And if you just pull yourself mm-hmm. up by the bootstraps, you can get it. And she was explaining how the house that they bought was bought last year, kind of like a, a almost like need to be demoed, and mm-hmm. increased 300% um, between renovation and flipping it to the point where the house is now almost worth $700,000. And trying to, and it's not even like a super fancy house, but you try to find something in our area that is some we would consider affordable, right? Where mm-hmm. you can have people that have flexibility. And I think that, you know, Adam and I talk a lot about resilience. And mm-hmm. when you have a household that has almost every cent going into housing, and then you throw in transportation, which are the two biggest costs that houses have, mm-hmm. they have zero flexibility. And that reduces their resilience immensely, right? If, if they need to get their car fixed, if they have a health concern, if, you know, all of these sort of things means that for a lot of people, and you saw it with COVID, there were a lot of people that couldn't keep up their payments in their house or even rental. So there's a, there's a lot of things that people just assume happen because it just naturally happened. And she's like, Oh yeah, the prices just keep going up. And, and you know, it just, it just kind of happens. And I'm like, no, actually you need to realize the situation that you were put in is a policy failure put in place by a, a, a certain choice. There was a priority made about should we go this way or that way? And the people that lost were the people that need to have housing that's close to where they work and that's not just a commodity, right? Yeah. So yeah. she was like, looked at me like, seriously? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And it should yeah. anger people because it's yeah. not an accident. It is not an accident, right? Oh, no, but it is um, not really designed for your friends necessarily to make a lot of money off of um, in the there's a documentary called push and it's about the right to housing and uh, it's really quite excellent and um, gives a different perspective it's, it's such a different perspective I know that you guys already come at it with this perspective but for a lot of people when you're talking about affordable housing and poverty reduction and that kind of thing they come at it through a charity lens but to come at it through a justice lens it's a completely different perspective. And um, one of the people that's interviewed in this documentary, she she says it's almost like she's talking about how BlackRock and other investment firms will come in and buy up a whole block and then nobody lives there. So you've got 
blocks of housing that used to be neighborhoods and now there's no one living there. And she says, it's almost like we don't have the language for what's happening now because we still use terms like landlord mm-hmm, <laughs> and tenant. Mm-hmm. And, and, but what, is it really a landlord if you own blocks and blocks and blocks of the city? We're using words. So when we talk about, you know, being a good investment for, for a person to be able to make, you know, for a landlord to be able to have an investment property, we're thinking about people tend to picture someone more like me who has a, I have a legal seat in my basement and it helps supplement our housing costs. That's off, um, offset some of our housing costs while providing a more affordable unit. And, uh, but that's not, <laughs> to use the term landlord when you're talking about an investment firm, a corporation mm-hmm. who owns, you know, blocks and blocks and blocks of the city. It, it's almost like we need newer vocabulary so that so that people can really understand the magnitude of, of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, something that, that we've kind of touched on before in other conversations is that there's a feeling that if you just supply more housing, which I'll add a caveat, depends on what type of housing you are supplying, but mm-hmm. the way that it's generally used within policy, at, the, at least at the provincial level, it's not really focused on let's zero in on a type of whether it be co-ops or smaller units or housing geared towards uh, unsheltered people. It is like we have a whole bunch of houses that are already in the pipe waiting to be built that Mm -hmm. could be put onto market sooner. And those are not the types of houses that we even built in the 60s and the 70s. Those were like 1,500 square feet like bungalows, maybe raised bungalows. Now we're building 3,000 to 4,000 square foot like mega mansions compared to how we -hmm. built them, right? And those aren't going to come for starter homes. Those aren't going to be coming in for rentals. Those aren't going to be coming in for people that are trying to transition off the streets into some more stable shelter, right? So this idea that, that if we just, you know, provide the policy to allow homes just to be built wherever... It, it it really is an oversimplification of of, 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 com, of a problem that requires a very precise policy um, and some rule changes. But just just supplying houses uh, it is not really the answer. And the other thing too is if you talk, if you look at like Oakville or places within Simcoe County, if you go into their records about the amount of houses that have permit that aren't being built that have all of their approvals, it's in the thousands. There are lots of homes that already have full approval that are not being built. And if I remember correctly, um, Mayor Rob Burton from Oakville was saying there's roughly 26,000 units in Oakville that are just sitting Mm -hmm. there waiting to be built with full approval, Mm -hmm. with no issue, and yet they're not being built. And why it goes back to what you're saying, the commodification, the market-based part of housing Mm -hmm. that has very little to do with the human rights um, part of it, with with the right to housing, with the equity piece of justice piece of it. Mm-hmm. It's just simply the houses will be built when we know we can make enough of a profit. And yeah. otherwise, you know, they just, we, we might just have to sit on those approvals for a while. Right. Yeah. Until they're profitable. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And another, even when you talk about uh, another pet peeve of mine <laughs> is when you talk about affordable housing and uh, government making investments in in affordable housing, and so it always sounds good because everyone assumes very few people 
really know what the definition of affordable housing, but most people assume it's lower than <laughs> lower than than what they're paying, or certainly lower than average market rent. But the reality is the way that those calculations are done, those formulas, um, it's 30% of, it's calculated as 30% of the monthly income of a low to moderate household income. But then, which sounds fine, except that low to moderate household income is also a defined term. And it's 60% uh, at the 60th percentile. So average would be, of course, the 50th percentile, but low to moderate is 60th percentile. And then they have this nice little chart that they update every year uh, across the province. And so for Simcoe County, the 60th percentile is $92,500 wow. household. So anything that's being built at a, uh, so, so the definition is 30% of that or average market rent, whichever is lower. So I haven't done this math in a while, but I believe that's about $2,250 um, per month. So in Simcoe County, average market rent is a little bit lower. That means when the government makes an announcement and says they're spending, you know, $6 million or whatever to build uh, on the development of affordable housing, all that necessarily means is that it's being subsidized by the government and by your tax dollars um, to be at average market rent. Hmm. There might be a few units that are lower than that, but mm -hmm. to meet that definition, all it needs to be is average market rent. And of course, average market rent changes, <laughs> changes all the time. So even, you know, even our, our target, so for Barry, there's a target of 800, I think it's 800 units by 2024, and we're about halfway there. But I mean, it's a 10-year, it's a 10-year plan, build 800 units, potentially, most of those to be at average market rent. And a unit doesn't have to be a newly created unit. The unit could be a rent supplement. So that brings an existing unit down into average market rent territory for for a lower income household. So it's difficult for me to watch <laughs> to watch mm -hmm. elected officials, you know, congratulate themselves and 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 talk about affordable housing. And I'm always a little skeptical, always thinking, yeah, what do you mean by affordable housing? Are these are these one bedroom apartments that are twelve hundred dollars a month? Or if what what are you actually building here? And, and can any of the people that I am trying to support actually live here? Mm -hmm. Have you ever done the calculation to figure out that $92,000, what that would, if they were to, let's, you know, rentals one part, but have we thought about what that would need for them to qualify? Like what level of mortgage that would qualify? Because my gut is that if we did that calculation, most of the housing that's in Simcoe County is well beyond what what the current stress test say that, that the 60th percentile percent. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. haven't done it for mortgages just because most almost everybody that we're working with rents to, to own is so <laughs> to even even think about making a down payment and owning a home for a lot of the people right. that we're trying to support is 
Oh yeah, no, no and I get it. Like I, no, I think yeah, I know. The but right no, way, but I think the average person, yeah, the average person they hear, and and you know, I don't know what the percentage is for home ownership, but in Canada, I know it's fairly high compared to the rest of the world. But the, um, but homeowners go, oh, affordable housing. That means it's going to be like cheaper. But I bet mm-hmm. you, if they looked at what you would need to be able to qualify for most of the houses in Simcoe County. I mm-hmm. bet you it would be well above that 60th percentile. It's pretty high. Um, yeah. That's just that's just my gut, though. Anyways, Adam, you probably have a question. I've been dominating here. For a little bit. Well, that's, that's all right. I know. I know you like uh, you enjoy this part. Uh, the um, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that, the housing <laughs> stuff. Yeah. The uh, I, it, it's making me also think of the um, so there's there's two. Uh, definitions of affordable too, right? Like what the uh, the other one also focuses on cost of living, so it's the same metric, but it's the cost of living. And I think that that's something that Margaret and I think about a fair bit, uh, just in terms of addressing sprawl and uh, you know, which for me, anyways, sprawl is is defined. I define sprawl as suburban areas which are which you need a car to be able to access basic amenities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Margaret already noted, a car is the second biggest expense Canadian families have. You know, which which already sort of takes a chunk out of your out of your ability to be able to pay pay rent or your mortgage or what have you. Um, and then and then what's interesting also with this whole thing is how how costs then get of sprawl get displaced onto society at large, uh, but the profits are captured by uh, a fairly small set of people. You know, mm-hmm. some fairly large corporations, some wealthy developers, that sort of thing, and the costs yeah. that are displaced are costs of you know for healthcare, right? With with when you're relying on cars, you're you're producing um, you know, air pollution and smog, which there's there's a, a lot of um, cost associated with asthma, for instance, uh, visits to emergency room. I've experienced that with my son. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you can continue going down the road. And so in terms of affordable, you're also, I mean, it's it's also interesting con- to consider. So what's affordable for an individual? What's affordable for a family? What's affordable for society? And, um, you know, the way that we build housing right now really is not affordable for, for, for I, any of those, <laughs> mm-hmm. really. Right. Um, I also think it's interesting to think about that, like, you can look at, at housing, and I think this connects a little bit to to this uh, idea of cost of living. You can build, like, look at affordable housing as the cost of a unit, but then, and and getting people into that space, but then also, and you've already sort of touched on this a little bit. The flip side of that is that wages have remained stagnant for so long. So part of the part of the solution needs to be, you know, enabling people to be able to provide for themselves in a better way, um, <clears throat> which which doesn't just come down to the paycheck that you make at the end of the week <clears throat> or, you know, whatever it might be. It's also enabling people to be able to spend more quality time, uh, you know, pursuing the things that, that they have a passion for, um, spending time with their family, with their friends, exploring their creative uh, pursuits and these sorts of things, all of, all of which are incredibly important to a healthy society. But People are, Absolutely. yeah, I'm They're sort of ranting on a little bit. Yeah, exactly. That's it, yeah. I work on, uh, I work at the 
network with. I'm part of the Poverty Reduction Task Group as well for Simcoe County, and we're involved with the calculation of the living wage mm. and the living wage uh, campaign in Simcoe County. So right now, living wage for Simcoe County is $18.01, and I know you guys are a living wage employer, and mm-hmm. so are we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, a lot of that, what you're talking about there, um, is sort of part of that campaign. So it's it's not just what do you need to keep the lights on and, and you know, not pass out from hunger. It's what do you need to have healthy food and, and what you need to be able to take a couple weeks of vacation and, and be able to spend time with your family and have a hobby and pursue pursue different things. And, and our slogan is that Simcoe County is a great place to live and play and that our whole community benefits when everyone can participate fully. Mm-hmm. If you just have your head down and you're just working to survive, um, the whole whole community misses out on, on what you have to, to contribute. Mm. Right. And the cycle just gets worse. Right. Absolutely. So I think that's I think that's a really good segue, because one thing that I wanted to ask um, to kind of I think we're getting close to wrap up. Usually Adam kind of gives me like a hey, but he has a yeah. video off today, so I can't tell. Um, well, so I'm just going with my gut here. Your gut's uh, right. Your gut is right. <laughs> my spidey senses are tingling. Mm-hmm. Um so I know that Canada had drafted kind of a national housing strategy. I know there's a lot of criticisms about it because it, if I remember something, but it wasn't properly or fully implemented. We've got local governments here that are talking about quote unquote affordable housing, but missing the mark on what actually is that bottom, you know, percentile below that 60, 60%, mm-hmm. right? Or 60th percentile. So what are some what are some directions that you, the people like, well, let's just go with you because you're not representing anybody else really today, but (laughs) what are some policy directions that you think Canada and province and municipalities can take to, to kind of move this issue forward? That's a, that's a big one, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think, um, well, federally, I think there's some good work starting with the, the national housing strategy that you mentioned and um, they've done a I think a good job of, of starting to listen to the voices of people who have first-person experience uh, with homelessness and with poverty in that work so that um, so that you know that first-person experience that lived experience is captured in that strategy uh, I feel like the funding is maybe not flowing in the way that we need it to, and so it's 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 going to take it's going to take a lot of money. But some of it is some of it is even just doesn't have to be a grant. Some of it can just be um, financing that is useful. So one of the things that holds nonprofits back, or even just people who want to build purpose-built rentals back, is the ability to borrow money to be able to do those builds compared to condos or um, single family dwellings. Um, When you can turn around and sell it right away, your investors are happy. Uh, They get their money back right away. Um, It's harder to find financing that is um, affordable for purpose-built rentals and for uh, nonprofits to build affordable rental units. So even just some financing tools from the federal government would be really helpful. 
Um, at the provincial level, there's some zoning stuff for sure. Um, and just giving municipalities more tools and then of course more funding, <laughs> more funding. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal government has recognized housing as a right. And that doesn't mean that they automatically have to make sure everyone has a house, but it does mean that they have to take um, a rights-based approach to their policy writing and to their funding allocations and um, to adequately resource those plans and to take a, a rights-based approach to their to their different their affordable housing plans and their housing strategies and all that. And, and um, I think we need to see that right recognized at the provincial level and at the municipal level as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that would be that's sort of a something that I am hoping to work towards um, with one of the groups that I work with over the next little while is to see that housing recognized as a right at the municipal level. And then, you know, there's less sexy things like the definition of affordable housing. Um, can we? Nobody speak my I mean, language. I got like the policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not super sexy to talk about talk about all that stuff, but. You know, that's a definition that's in the provincial policy statement, PPS 2014, and it's still in PPS 2019. And, you know, that's not a sexy document to talk about, but that's where we find this definition. And it's a definition from from PPS, but it it, uh, ends up up, uh, driving social policy, because that's the definition for the whole province, whether you're a developer or um, in the social sector. So, you know, there's a few things. I got a few, a few things <laughs> I'd like to see uh, change, but I think there, there's some movement in the right direction from the federal government, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's not a sexy list, but I mean, that's this is where, you know, uh, I get into the policy wonkiness and Adam, mm-hmm. I've pulled him now into it too, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. it's like you see how those little language, it's a shall or a, a may, really yeah. changes what it looks like on the ground and what percentage sure. and what kind of little language is in there. It's like, you know, writing rules for my kids. And if I don't explicitly say this is what you can't do, they will find a loophole in there saying, well, you didn't say that I couldn't do this. I'm like, ah. <laughs> so you have to really, you know, policy isn't always always great. But I think one of the things that Adam and I try to do is is help people recognize there needs to be a shift in how we think of housing less as a commodity and more as a humanitarian right. And that means shifting the type of housing that we allow and bring into our communities away Mm -hmm. from the housing that uh, perpetuates inequities and Mm -hmm. environmental harm and more towards housing that can take care of people and take care of families and allow us to invest in communities. So that is the shift that needs to happen. And that absolutely 120,000% is a choice. And Mm -hmm. so people have to recognize that that is a a good choice to make and pressure their governments to to make that choice. Right, Adam? Yeah. Yeah. I I would, I would just add, I was, I was thinking of this earlier as well, um, that, you know, the rights based approach I think is, is, um, it's interesting to think about, you know, whose rights are being represented in the housing market right now, particularly around affordable housing. So, you know, uh, the right of someone to, exclude uh, or, or, you know, to hold on to an empty apartment 
because they have paid money for it. Perhaps they haven't even paid money for it. You know, they've they've sort of taken a loan and it's actually not their money that that they have used to, uh, you know, claim ownership over this space. But they're right to hold on to that because uh, they, I'm doing air quotes here, own it. It's their property. You know, by and large, it, it, it supersedes the right of someone who needs a warm and safe space. You know, if you go to Maslow's hierarchy, you know, like that's 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 mm-hmm. the, one of the top ones right up there. And yeah. people people die because they don't have these spaces. They don't have a safe space. They don't have a space that they can that they can take shelter in. And so it's just it's an interesting you, you can go down that road. And, and, you know, of course, lots of things about the way our economy currently functions start to fall apart if you try to address that problem. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's not a problem that needs to be addressed, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it's a pretty sort of disturbing circumstance that, that we seem to prioritize property rights over the right of, humanitarian uh, rights. yeah, over the right, right of someone to have, to, to have a, a safe life, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. On that, uh, we, on that happy note, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, do the Furious Five. <laughs> so we like Kung Fu Panda at our house, and um, anyways, the Furious Five. For those who haven't watched it, it's it's part of the thing. But I have five questions. We have five questions that I'm going to ask them, and we just always end our podcast now the last few times with it. Uh, although last time we did the Furious Six with Shaq, but I don't think you're a basketball fan, so I don't think we're going that way uh, with you no. today. <laughs> So, uh, although it's really fair to just say the Raptors are going to repeat, it's, it's okay. We won't, we won't accept anything else. Um, <laughs> question number one, what is your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Let's go like pre-COVID times or current COVID time or current COVID times, whatever you, whatever you prefer. Okay. My answer is the same for both. And I love the farmhouse restaurant uh, down by the water here in Barrie. And they have the best burger, and you can pick two fra- two sides. So mm-hmm. I get the burger with cheese and bacon, and I get a side of fries and a side of mac and cheese. But then I say, hold the gravy. And then she says, do you want gravy with your fries? And I say, no. That's apparently where I draw the line. I don't <laughs> need gravy on my fries. But I will have mac and cheese and fries and a bacon cheeseburger. I'm I'm realizing in a very powerful way that it's the wrong time to do this right before dinner. <laughs> My stomach is grumbling like crazy right now. It's upset. I'm not on dinner duty tonight, so it's perfect time for me because I can just make a phone call. <laughs> hey, when you're on your way home. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Number two, this is this is a very broad question on purpose. Uh, oh. What do you wish you had known when you started out? Everybody's like, what What do you mean? When did I I don't care. You pick a time. That's what do you wish you had known when you started out? Um, <laughs> that is really broad and difficult. <laughs> um, when I started, let's say when I started uh, covid Let's say when I started staying home for COVID-19, um, if I had known, I wish I had known it would be so long because I made some, <laughs> set some new uh, habits <laughs> and some new uh, concessions when we thought it would only be for a few weeks. 
And um, now I kind of regret that I have to take my kids for ice cream once a week. And (laughs) (laughs) there are a few few different things that I would have uh, phrased very differently if I'd realized we were in there for such a long (laughs) haul. That's great. Well, it just goes to show you when you make a role, this is what I think about with policy stuff, is when you see a policy, pretend it's like your least favorite politician that's going to have to implement that and have that rule. Would you feel comfortable (laughs) with them having it? And kids are like their own little mini dictators, right? So you go, is this a rule that I want them to actually be able to uphold? I'm not really sure. (laughs) Uh, Number three, what are you curious about right now? Uh, Well, one thing that I'm curious about and that I'm researching is why that ties into this conversation anyway, is why city bylaws currently trump uh, human rights. <laughs> I'm, because I'm not sure when I say, but this is a human right, why I am, why the answer is yes, but there is no case law in Ontario. And so um, our bylaws supersede that. So that is something I'm very curious about and trying to find the answer to. Interesting. Okay. Uh, what is your, do you have a go-to podcast right now? I like Revisionist History, and it's just come out with a new season. Um, that's Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Yep. So I'm, yep. I'm listening to that one. Okay, and you're at the end of the gauntlet. The end of the Furious Five is here. No, these are hard. <laughs> <laughs> we should be kinder to the people that come on, Adam. The the people that take a little bit longer and the interference of the world are like, oh my gosh, you're, you're <laughs> insulting me right now. Um, maybe we should, we never give them a heads up just for the listeners at home. Um, number five, a piece of advice for when people are feeling discouraged. Oh, um. See, we all do the fluff well, pieces here. It's all fluff. Yeah. No, <laughs> I have a few because I I like. I'm a bit of a cheerleader for <laughs> for a lot of uh, advocacy groups, and so um, there's the one about never think. You you probably know better than I do. Uh, never think that a, a person can't change a small. How does that one go? Never think that. Oh, the Margaret Mead one. Yes. Uh, that one that's on the bottom of my email do you think I, I know. know I know that's never why I said you would know it <laughs> never doubt that a group of thoughtful people can change the world indeed is the only thing that ever has or something to that effect yes and then there's another one that kind of goes hand in hand with that which is um, money only wins when we're not organized is <laughs> the upshot of it um, mm. that when it comes down to money and people Money only wins when the people aren't organized. So when we get organized, we can win. Hmm. That's nice. a really good one. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Are we are we at the end here? Uh, yeah, we're <laughs> at the end. I, she, I just took her vote as she's saying the Raptors are going to repeat. So, I mean, okay. that's, that's yeah, all. Yeah, put me down for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm building consensus. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Of course. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. Lovely to chat policy. Muggy, muggy September day. (laughs) You one day you will get the month right. I'm quite certain. (laughs) Okay, folks. Well, uh, we've been a little bit sporadic with getting these out. There's been a lot on our plate. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah, we hope to see you again soon or hear you or hear us. Ah. 
doesn't work. <laughs> Anyways, Are you hearing us? Yes. You know, you know what we're talking about. So what? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, listen, listen for a new episode, and um, until then, be safe. Wear those masks when you're out in public. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're walking into stores, that's now that's now mandatory in Simcoe County. Yeah. Okay. Which is good. Yeah. As of today, right? As yeah. Of, as of today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. And uh, well. yes, and to borrow to 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 borrow uh, Shaq's uh, Shaq's statement there. Be kind and humble. I I love that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, Shaq's world. She was on our previous episode. Anyways, thanks again, Jennifer and Margaret, and uh, we'll we'll uh, till next time. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye.